Our religious freedoms are in serious jeopardy. Lots and lots of Christians are hypocrites about standards and pastoral authority. There is a realistic path to a one-world government. Christians have developed an almost socialistic disregard for localized pastoral leadership. Hey, Christians, on that positive note, we need to get a grip on these things as we move into the future. All of this from my recent blog article titled Unmasked, Cogent COVID Thoughts. You can find that at ryanafrench.com. I'm your host, Ryan French, so let's dive in. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Apostolic Voice, the podcast. Today, I'm looking at four things that have been unmasked by COVID-19 in our world today. I think every Christian needs to open up their eyes and pay attention to what's happening around them as we move into the future. And the very first subject I'd like to look at is how our religious freedoms are in serious jeopardy. 2019 seems like the distant past, but somehow I can vaguely recall certain things that happened way back in the good old pre-COVID days. A particular memory keeps pushing its way to the forefront of my mind. It's a conversation I overheard between two friends. Friend number one, who will remain nameless, commented about the world's increasing hostility towards the church, and he had lots of concerns about maintaining our freedoms. Friend number two, who will also remain nameless, considered this to be the silliest viewpoint a modern Christian could hold. He accused friend number one of nursing a persecution complex. I I agreed with friend number one. There was an awkward silence, and we all just agreed to disagree. But today, we have churches fighting their state government and the United States government for the right to simply have church. Startling numbers of churches are permanently closing their doors. And pastors have been fined, harassed, and incarcerated for failing to comply with shutdown mandates. We're seeing the single greatest onslaught against religious freedoms in the history of the United States. COVID-19 unmasked the animosity towards Christianity, already walking in the halls of power at both the state and federal levels. The waters are being tested, and a stronger wave of discriminatory action towards Christianity and churches and pastors and saints is just around the corner. This unmasking is probably for the best, in my opinion. Maybe it'll shake some of us out of our naivety and call us back to effectual, fervent prayer. But one thing is for sure, Antichrist spirits are only one pandemic away from stripping us of our freedoms. And for the non-religious folks out there, My freedom to worship won't be the only freedom taken. They'll come for something you care about eventually. If you dance with the devil long enough, you will get burned. I'm not trying to stoke fears or be negative. I believe this is a great opportunity for the church to reach the world with the gospel. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. We usually think of this as a challenge to let our light shine as bright as possible and And that's fine. We say things like, let your light shine, or don't hide your light, or sing songs like, this little light of mine. However, Jesus compared the church to a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. That word cannot is translated into English from two Greek words, oi and dinatai, which means does not have the ability. We could accurately translate that verse to say this, you are the light of the world, a city placed on a a hill by God that does not have the ability to be hidden. The church is purposefully designed and carefully crafted by God to be set apart. And that's what holiness means, to be set apart. The church is is designed by God to be brightly shining in the darkness, 
The true church can't hide. It can't blend in. It can't be comfortable. It can't conform itself to the world. So as the world gets scarier and scarier, the light of the church will draw hungry hearts to itself as never never before. I think that's the great hope of the darkness that we're living in in these final hours. And so the church, when it's the true church, has no choice but to make a difference in the world. I've noticed throughout this pandemic how quickly we all allowed government officials to have absolute authority over us. Officials told us to wear masks, and we all went out and bought masks. They told us to close businesses and stay home, and we did. They told us to stay away from people, and and we did. They told us not to touch people, shake hands, and, and we did what they told us to do. They told our kids to stay home from school and learn online, and, and they did, and my kids still do. And uh, just for the record, I, I realize that I still don't know math. They told sports to shut down, and they did. I thought that was the last sacred cow left standing in America, but even that shut down. It drastically impacted our dress codes, our vacations, our social lives, our finances for sure, and our education. Why did we fall in line so quickly? We fell in line almost universally. Christians did, with, with a few exceptions. We fell in line when the experts disagreed, and I say that in air quotes, we fell in line, even though the facts were and are and probably always will be difficult to decipher. We make great personal sacrifices. For some people, it'll take them years to recover, and some, sadly, will never recover. I believe we did it because we perceived those sacrifices as being a greater good than the pain it caused. We sensed the urgency and we pulled together, as we should have done and as we're still doing. Some people probably operated from raw fear, but even that fear wasn't just pure selfishness. It was born out of concern for others as well. We, we cared about our health and we cared about the health of others. We deemed it to be important. I've watched people faithfully wear masks and stay indoors for months who've never allowed their pastor to have any real influence in their lives. COVID-19 unmasked a barren wasteland of hypocrisy in many professing Christians. They make all types of excuses for why they won't listen to their pastor or allow their pastor to have authority in their lives. He's too intrusive, too cautious, too demanding, too blah, 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 and it goes on and on. The reality is they're more than willing to comply with authority when they believe the stakes are high. COVID just unmasked the reality that they don't view biblical issues as that important. They don't really consider sin as important or judgment as imminent. Furthermore, they do believe in authority. They just don't want godly authority. I think we're going to have to deal with this moving forward and, and go back to the basics and understand that pastoral authority is vital, especially as the world grows darker and darker. And if we would listen to government officials who clearly don't have it all together, why would we do any less for the man of God that has been placed in our lives? I think we should think about that moving forward.
So this is episode number two of Apostolic Voice, the podcast. I'm your host, Ryan French. Most of you that are listening early on like this, you probably know about this podcast because of the blog, Apostolic Voice, the blog. For those that don't know, you can find that at ryanafrench.com. I've been writing there since 2014. For all of you who've been with me on that journey, I want to thank you so much for jumping from there to this podcast. And I want to ask you to do me a favor. I'd like you to go to whatever platform uh, you're listening to this podcast on right now, whatever your favorite platform is, and submit a review. Give it a very favorable review. Uh, Otherwise, I'll have to pray and ask the Lord if you can even be saved. No, I'm just kidding, but please do give us a good review. I was born on Saturday in church on Sunday, grew up a preacher's kid, pastor's kid. My whole life, my my father, whom I'm now privileged to serve alongside in a, in a wonderful church here on the south side of Atlanta, Dr. Talmadge French, he's always been consistent. Even as a child, I remember he was passionate about the coming of the Lord. And he, along with almost every other prophecy pundit, pointed to some kind of nuclear warfare or World War III scenario as being the catalyst which would or could bring the world under one global global government. And while that's possible, there wouldn't be much left to govern after massive nuclear strikes around the world. But this pandemic unmasked how easy it would be for a full-blown epidemic to usher in a one-world government. I can easily envision several epidemic scenarios where the people of the world would willingly give up their freedoms without a shot being fired or a bomb being dropped. Think of the panic if people were dropping dead in the streets of an unknown, incurable, virally transmitted disease. I mean, just stop and think about it for a minute. Look at the, at the level of fear, panic, outright trepidation that people have right now. And in no way am I minimizing the, the pain of, of lives that have been lost by COVID-19. But really, if you look at just the raw statistics, the number of deaths are, are not that far off from many other diseases that take place each year. Now, certainly, it's good that we've been careful, and I think that we've done a lot of good things and necessary things. But think about the level of panic we have in a pandemic and magnify that by a million in a full-blown pandemic where you walk down the street and you see someone fall over dead and the hospitals are overrun, what if one government magically had the cure and would only give it to people who surrendered unconditionally to their authority? This virus, uh, it could be man-made or it could be weaponized. It doesn't matter because the opportunity for dominance could be leveraged either way. Even now, it isn't hard to imagine a world where individuals wouldn't be allowed to buy or sell, which would be a fulfillment of Revelation 13 and 17. They wouldn't even be able to buy or sell without having some kind of chip or government-issued ID proving they were virus-free. This was knocked around even in this pandemic. There There was lots of talk about perhaps we shouldn't be allowed to buy or go places or do certain things unless we had some kind of some kind of way to demonstrate that we were virus free. By the way, you know, we we've talked for years about chips being implanted, but but 
you think of the hand and the head, now they're saying that uh, our cell phones, which are connected to the hand and the head, our cell phones are are really just as good as any chip that they might would implant in your body. So COVID-19 revealed a realistic path to the end times that doesn't sound like nonsensical conspiracy theories. This is right now relevant, relevant ways that the world could legitimately come to an end and the world could coalesce into a globalized one world government very, very, very quickly. Think about it, church. Let's be ready. the foundations of biblical church government and the United States government are similar. And that isn't by accident. The founders modeled the Bible in numerous ways when crafting the Constitution. For example, individual states were originally intended to be autonomous, yet governed and united by the Constitution. The federal government was limited and designed to have minimal interference in the affairs of local governments. Similarly, The early church was designed to be locally governed by pastors who were united by adherence and obedience to the Holy Word of God. Christ remained the head of the church while bishops only intervened in local church matters when the Word was being disregarded. Biblically sound apostolic organizations follow this paradigm. Pastors are given leeway to govern their local flock as long as they remain doctrinally sound and morally pure. Most decisions are best made by local leadership because local leadership is connected to the specific personalized needs of a local congregation. So, COVID-19 hit and local pastors were forced to make tough calls, lots of them, without any precedence to lean on. They were deluged with lots of convoluted facts being thrown at them from every direction. Some pastors closed down their gatherings and some remained closed. Full disclosure, in my church, we shut down and we were one of the first to close down and remained that way for a long time and are still uh, really only at about 20% capacity in terms of how we meet. Some pastors waited a little longer than others to close in-person gatherings. A very small number of pastors never closed at all. Some are fighting to reopen. Some did outdoor services and Zoom services and Facebook meetings. And like our church, we, uh, we scrambled to, to get our live stream put together. It was already a, a part of our yearly plan to, to launch a live stream. But like everybody else, we, we suddenly uh, put that to the forefront of things. And, and then we realized that uh, almost everything you needed for a live stream was on back order. And I'm talking deep back order. And uh, almost every church in America was, if they didn't already have it, struggling to get a live stream put together. And, uh, and people did everything they could. They tried, they tried their very best. Anything that we could do as pastors to keep a sense of connectedness between not just ourselves and our congregation, but for the congregation to be connected one to another. In other words, local pastors did the best they could do for their flocks. They prayed, they agonized, sought wise counsel, researched, and listened to the needs of the saints. 
And the average pastor, listen, is working harder this year than in most previous years of ministry. They've diligently strived to do the right thing for their local assemblies, and not just for their assemblies, but to do the right thing in the sight of God, to be pleasing to God throughout all of this. Yet regardless of what decisions local pastors made, they were met with unrelenting condemnation at every turn. Facebook pastors went completely nuts, commenting and criticizing from the comfort of their sideline seats. Pastors clashed with pastors over the right pandemic protocols. Saints defended their pastors' decisions by attacking other pastors' decisions. Or worse, some saints threw their pastor under the bus and and sided with a pastor who who doesn't even know their name, has never prayed for them, has never has never laid his hands on them, has never, uh, has never visited them in the hospital, but they sided with someone they, they don't even know. I expected worldly cultural commentators to aim their blistering attacks on church leaders, but I admit the infighting of the church and church people and church leaders took me off guard. The lack of civility, respect, charity, grace, and dignity in these public disagreements is deeply disturbing. But setting all of that aside, the complete disregard and disrespect towards localized church government was the real shocker unmasked by COVID-19. Doesn't it make sense that local pastors would take different approaches based on the needs and facts on the ground in their community? Wouldn't we expect different churches to adopt various approaches based on their surroundings? Why would our way be the only way? Looking back and having had many hundreds of conversations with different pastors, I think every honest pastor wishes they could have done at least one thing differently this year. Zero people had all the right answers in 2020. It would be helpful moving forward to reestablish the authority of the local church leadership in a global information-saturated world. Anyone with the slightest understanding of ministry knows that real-world decisions are complex and vary from place to place. Rarely do cookie-cutter policies work properly in every church. Regardless, let's at least try to recognize in extremely difficult times that no one wants what is best for a local church more than its local pastor. Let's give them some grace and trust they're seeking God for the flock he entrusted to them. And let's throw away this this socialist mindset that every church and every pastor has to do everything exactly the same way or somehow they're not orthodox. Let's just give them some grace and trust that they're doing the right thing for their flock because they love it more than you do and because they've been appointed for their flock by the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I wanted to close the show out today with one of my favorite poems that I've read in sermons. I've referred to it over the years in different places. I always thought this poem was called The Clattering Train. Uh, I first came to know this poem because Sir Winston Churchill famously quoted it several times just before the start of World War II. Uh, when Neville Chamberlain was not wanting to recognize that Adolf Hitler was indeed a wild lunatic who was going to spark another world war, Churchill was trying to wake 
Great Britain and the world out of their slumber, out of their, uh, out of their complacency, and he would quote this poem. But when I was studying the poem recently, I, I realized that uh, its original title was called Death and His Brother Sleep, and it was written by um, by an Irish poet named Edwin J. Milliken. He wrote it in 1890. It was first published in a magazine called Punch Magazine. And uh, I, I found the original uh, little illustration that they had along with this poem. I'm going to post it on, on some of the social media so you can see it for, for all three of you who are interested like I am. And the poem depicts a train conductor uh, uh, asleep at the wheel, and sleep, well, an individual who is supposed to represent sleep is is laying over him. And then just above sleep is death, and it's holding on to to the wheel of the train. And uh, I think I think since this has been kind of a cheery podcast and we've talked about a lot of optimistic things, no, I, I realize it's been kind of a heavy podcast. I think this poem is perfect because it does it does illustrate all the things that we've been talking about that, that when we fall asleep at the wheel, that's when destruction takes place. Now, I want to just say this in conclusion, then we're going to close out. I'm going to read the poem for you. I know it might sound like I've been, I've been negative today, but the reality is if, if we would wake up, if we would, all, if we would all realize what's happening around us, we could take the necessary steps to grab a hold of the wheel and be where we ought to be doing what we ought to be doing in these last days. If we remain asleep, it will be our destruction. But if we wake up, I believe that we can do the work of the Lord and be impactful all the way until Jesus comes. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoy this poem. Who is in charge of the clattering train, the axles creak and the coupling strain, ten minutes behind at the junction, yes, and we're twenty now to the bad, no less. We must make it up on our flight to town, clatter and crash, that's the last train down. Flashing by with a steamy trail, pile on the fuel, we must not fail. At every mile, we a minute must gain. Who is in charge of the clattering train? Why, flesh and blood is a matter of course. You may talk of iron and prate and force, but after all, and do what you can, the best and cheapest machine is man. Wealth knows it well, and hucksters feel. Tis safer to trust them to send you than steal. With a bit of brain and a conscience behind, muscle works better than steam or wind, better and longer and harder all around, and cheap, so cheap, men superabound. Men, stalwart, vigilant, patient, bold, the stokeholes heat and the crow's nests cold, the choking dust of the noisome mine and the northern blast or the beating brine, with dogged valor they coolly brave, so on rattling trail or wind-scourged wave, at engine lever, at furnace front, or steersman's wheel, they must bear the brunt of lonely vigil or lengthened strain. Man is in charge of the thundering train. Man, in the shape of a modest chap, in fustian trousers and greasy cap, a trifle stolid and something gruff, yet though unpolished, of sturdy stuff, 
with grave gray eyes and a knitted brow, the glare of sun and the gleam of snow, those eyes have stared on this many a year, the crow's feet gather in mazes queer, about their corners, most apt to choke, and with grime of fuel and fume of smoke, little to tickle the artist's taste, an oil can, a fistful of cotton waste, the levers click and the furnace gleam, and the mingled odor of oil and steam. These are the matters that fill the brain of the man in charge of the clattering train. Only a man, but away at his back, in a dozen years on the steely track, a hundred passengers place their trust in this fellow of Fustian grease and dust. They cheerily chat or they calmly sleep, sure that the driver his watch will keep on the night-dark track that he will not fail. So the thud, thud, thud of wheel upon rail, the hiss of steam spurts athwart the dark, lull them to confident drowsiness, hark. What is that sound? Tis the stertorous breath of a slumbering man, and it smacks of death. Full sixteen hours of continuous toil, midst the fume of sulfur, the reek of oil, have told their tale on the man's tired brain and death is in charge of the clattering train. Sleep, death's brother, as poets deem, stealeth soft to his side, a dream, of home and rest on his spirit creeps, that wearied man as the engine leaps, throbbing, swaying along the line, those poppy fingers his head incline, lower, lower, in slumber's trance, the shadows fleet and the gas gleams dance, faster, faster in mazy flight, as the engine flashes across the night, mortal muscle and human nerve, cheap to purchase and stout to serve, strained too fiercely will faint and swerve, overweighted and underpaid, this human tool of exploiting trade, though tougher than leather, tenser than steel, fails at last for his senses reel, his nerves collapse and with sleep-sealed eyes, prone and helpless a log he lies, a hundred hearts beat placidly on, unwitting they that their warder's gone. A hundred lips are babbling blithe. Some seconds hence they in pain may writhe, for the pace is hot and the points are near, and sleep hath deadened the driver's ear, and signals flash through the night in vain. Death is in charge of the clattering train. <laughs>